predominantly uh, working with our students here, grades uh, 6 to grade 12. Uh, and it's my privilege to be with you this morning to get to uh, share God's word. Um, so I told my brother not to be driving so fast. You know, I figured it was my duty as a younger brother. The roads were filled with snow. It was a stormy night. We were headed out to spend some time with our cousins who live uh, a number of miles out of town. And we climbed into uh, which what was the, the car that the kids were allowed to use at the time, which was a, a 1982 VW diesel rabbit, baby blue in color, just so you can picture it. We climb into this thing, and of course, this was before anyone cared about snow tires. And, uh, you know, of course, Dad had told us, uh, it's storming out there. If you're going to go, make sure you pack some winter boots and some ski pants. And we figured there's no way we're going to need those. And like true teenagers, mom said, and when you go, it's cold, wear a toque. And of course, uh, as all the teens in this room, it's the one way that I'm relevant still this year is I don't like wearing a toque when it's cold out. So we climbed into the car and we headed out. And it was blowing snow. It was dark. And uh, we were so lucky that actually some other vehicle had been down this back road before us because uh, they had carved a trail for us to follow. And as we drove, I kept telling Dean, slow down, like, maybe, maybe you shouldn't be driving so fast. At least this is how I remember the story, given that it's probably 25 years have passed since then. And I can remember the sound of the snow scraping on the bottom of the car and piling up and ricocheting, and then all of a sudden, it happened. The front wheel of our car caught the side of the snow and it dragged us into the ditch. And let me tell you, there was already a ton of snow that year and we plummeted into the ditch like a missile. And we're so lucky that this car had uh, a sunroof that wheeled open with an arm crank because literally on the driver's side door, you couldn't even see out it. The snowbank was that high. We were that stuck in the ditch. And we thought we we're going to have to crawl through the sun hatch but luckily, I was able to wedge my door open and get the door open. And we got out. And there we are, two way underdressed teenagers in the middle of a snowstorm before cell phones, wondering what we're going to do. And so we began to walk. We began to trudge through the snow down the trail that our car had made. And we were on the lookout. You see, we'd grown up in this part of the woods. We knew the fields, we knew the landmarks, and we knew that we weren't that far uh, from the Johnson's farm. And so we began to walk, and of course, our pants got wet with snow, our feet began to get cold, my ears began to swell and get so ice cold, I remember just almost like being in tears, holding my ears, trying to keep my, you know, that thing that we do with the, with the light jacket that you're wearing, you pull your hands in and then you cup it onto your ears and we're walking and we're trying to go as fast as we can and we're on the lookout. It's pitch black, but then we see it. Down another dirt road, we see it. We see a yard light. And we're so relieved. And we began to march quickly onward towards this light. Oh, I can't tell you the thankfulness of seeing that yard light. And when we got there, we got to the Johnson farm. Mrs. Johnson answered the door, and there we are, just red and freezing. And she opens the door, and without hesitation, she just says, kids, get in here. Get in here and get warm. And uh, 
we kind of consider it divine providence. We're glad that it ended up being the Johnson household that we had to go to. Because as two teen boys, this house had two teen girls. And so it wasn't long. It wasn't long. And uh, Mrs. Johnson had us, you know, they had us covered uh, in blankets. And, sorry, they had my brother and I covered in blankets. Not with the Johnson girls, okay? And... It's not that kind of story. And so we're covered in blankets. I, like, I had my own blanket. My brother had his own blanket. And she hustled us down. She actually gave us a change of clothes. We had Mr. Johnson's pants on. Our clothes went into the dryer to get dry. And it wasn't long. And we're sitting in front of the TV wrapped in blankets. The Johnson girl's there. And we're sipping hot cocoa and watching TV. Waiting for dad to come and rescue us. And I think back to this story, and I realize the first moment that hope struck my heart is the moment I saw that yard light and knew that I was close. I didn't have much further to go. There was an excitement of going, I'll have some reprieve from the cold, some reprieve from this weather if I just make it to the Johnson house. Well, we're into our Advent series, and so uh, I'm excited to get to be the first one uh, to speak on Advent because I'd like to do um, a little bit of a talk this morning that helps us appreciate what Advent is um, and a little bit about where it comes from. Our series is titled God With Us, which we sang a song titled Emmanuel, which means God with us, and how when God is with us, he brings things like hope, love, joy, and peace into our lives. We're going to be marking the passing uh, of Advent, of course, which is a fairly common practice, is having uh, an Advent wreath. uh, And there's five candles, uh, one candle for each Sunday leading up to Christmas. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, the center candle, which is the Christ candle, that's lit uh, then. So I'm going to light here. We've got our hope candle. We'll light it here. And so the theme of what we're talking about this morning is hope. And you'll see behind me, our hope tree has added lights. The color of purple, the color of the season of Advent is purple. The color of kings as we uh, await expectantly uh, the arrival of our king. You see, uh, why I'm excited to talk about Advent is because I feel like there's been, um, I never really knew much about Advent. Uh, And even when it became popular or or hip to celebrate uh, Advent in our, in, our, in our churches, I realize that there's actually something more about Advent that sometimes we miss. And so we want to do due justice to that if we're going to celebrate Advent, we want to look at it in its context and not just sort of appropriate as sort of like a, a hipster word for the Christmas series, okay? Because that's not what Advent is actually about. Christmas season starts on Christmas And it lasts for 12 days, an amazing feast of celebrating uh, Christ's arrival. But Advent is meant to get at something different. It's meant to get at this awaiting, uh, expecting. And so we jump in looking at Advent this morning um, as a part of a larger whole. Uh, It means coming or arrival. um, And it's part of what would be called the liturgical year or the Christian calendar. And I know sometimes, like growing up in the church tradition that I did, that I didn't really know what the Christian calendar was or what it meant or its significance. And honestly, in my teens, sometimes uh, as others would talk about, you know, the Anglicans or the Catholics and like the Christian calendar, the liturgical year, I just thought it was kind of weird, right? And I sort of just dismissed it. 
But as you begin to look into it, you actually begin that it's actually something that's really quite beautiful and amazing. And so we're going to take a moment uh, this morning to kind of walk through and look at uh, what the Christian year is and how it's made up. And then I want to show us a short video on a biblical concept of what hope is. And then we're going to dive in, and I've got kind of three points that sort of relate to the Christian calendar, um, but are sort of uh, meaningful for us as we look at scriptures uh, in Isaiah this morning, okay? So uh, I've kind of, I found, if you Google, you could find a really great hand-drawn graphic that I've sort of really, like, not doing it justice, but tried to reproduce just in a way that makes it easier to sort of talk through it with you this morning. And it'll be up up here on the screen. But if you're beginning to have a conversation about the Christian calendar, it actually starts with a question. And the question is this, is how is time measured? Or how do we measure time? Now, for us, obviously, the, you know, with the passage of time, we measure it by birthdays, right? Which is great. The more you have, the longer you live, right? This is a good thing. We celebrate every year our birthdays. But we also mark, we mark time by the way of things that are significant. So, like, you'll describe seasons in your life as, like, all my, the middle years in, in school, right? Or high school years. Some of you here are looking towards or experiencing those retirement years, those ways of describing what's meaningful in our lives. You know, I'm currently thinking about the prime income earning years, right? As, as, as the stage that I'm in, that, you know, saving at this time in your life is so important so that I can, like you folks, hit retirement and be comfortable. Or events. We mark the passage of time with events too. Uh, like engagements that we always remember the, the, the year that we got engaged. Or married. Or, or the births of our children or grandchildren. Or the, passage of a, the passing of a loved one in a, in a death or an accident. Um, growing up on a farm, uh, an event that marked uh, a season in time was the, the Great White Combine of 1996. You remember that? In Grenfell, in 96, we had, uh, I believe it was um, August, late August, we had a hailstorm that went through that just wiped out absolutely everything. And so it became sort of like farmer lore in Grenfell to talk about this great white combine of 1996. Perhaps in years to come, we'll be talking about the wet, soggy struggle of 2019, right? That this fall has been. The civic calendar, uh, if you go to the next slide, is, is really a calendar that's sort of based around months, right? We, we mark time with, with a calendar. And actually, back in ancient times, there was multiple ways of tracking time. So it's sometimes why when you, when you look, our, our calendars are sort of out of sync when you start looking around, like the dating of Jesus and, and stuff. It gets difficult because there wasn't one uniform way to mark the passage of time. Everybody had their own. There was using the moon, there was using the sun, there was using uh, significant events. And so it was really sort of a bit of a modge podge. But we've come to know uh, the Gregorian calendar is something that is just a staple, a civic calendar that marks the passing of time. That it uh, ends in December and it begins in January, walking us through the months. But with this, actually, isn't it neat how the passing of time actually becomes quite connected with money, with finances? That in the business world, we talk about quarters, 
right? First quarter, second quarter, third quarter, and the final quarter. And the discussion becomes all about profits, how much we've made or how much we've lost or what to expect in the future. And yet, that way of thinking puts sort of finances at the heart of what's meaningful in life. But this isn't but this isn't what God desires. This isn't the way we should mark time. At least not for the Christian. And right from early on, you see, a lot of the months are named after emperors or named after Roman gods. And so they would, you know, have these months would be celebrations to these gods. And yet Christians didn't feel comfortable participating in a measuring of time that honored all these other gods. And so right from very early on, now this took a few hundred years to sort of formulate and complete, but they began to want to measure time differently. And so begins the liturgical calendar or the Christian calendar. They wanted to base their calendar, if you go to the next slide, they wanted to base it on the story of Jesus. The significant things that happened in his life that he calls us to participate in on a yearly basis. Now, there was, they wanted to get all the high points. And so uh, the next slide here will bring up, there's sort of these uh, several key things about the life of Christ that they wanted to make sure that was included. So they realized that, hey, before Jesus came, there's actually this whole season of the Old Testament with the prophets and what God was doing in the people of God uh, where it was before Jesus had, had actually come. And so they said, we, there needs to be something in there that represents sort of this, this anticipation of God's promise. And then later, it's all about the incarnation, about Jesus' birth, of, of how God becomes, takes on human flesh and dwells among us. That God, who is outside of time, who is above time, who is beyond time, how he steps into it in a certain point in history. And so we have the season of Christmas, which celebrates that for 12 days, beginning on the 25th. Then they thought it'd be so important to focus on the revelation of God. And so this is Jesus teaching about who he is and his instructions. Then, of course, obviously the crucifixion where Jesus goes to a cross to pay for our sin. And then the celebration of, of obviously the resurrection is going to play an important part. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most important part in the Christian calendar. All things are meant to focus on that. And I know sometimes in churches we sort of almost give off the wrong idea because sometimes it seems like Christmas is the high point, right? It's the point where we go elaborate with our decorations and our, and our, and our um, introspection and our, our readings and we, we do it up right. And then sometimes Easter is sort of like the lesser, right? But it's not meant to be that way. The high point of the Christian year is the resurrection of Jesus. And then finally, the last one they focus on uh, is the ascension. And so with these key themes, as the next slide will show you, this is how they sort of work in to the Christian year. And now the months are up there just to kind of help guide us through. So the first season, which Advent means coming or arrival, uh, we see it there as the season of sort of anticipation. And then the incarnation is on there, is celebrated as the days of Christmas. And then Epiphany, which Epiphany is sort of this um, manifestation of, of a divine 
of the divine or a supernatural being. So yeah, in a way, you might hear somebody say, like, oh, I've, I've had an epiphany, right? Where they, they've come to this marvelous sort of glorious realization because of some event or some thought that is, is an epiphany, right? And so it's the season of epiphany, which in the Christmas story marks the coming of the, the wise men, right? And their revelation or the, the revelation of Jesus to these Gentile kings. Then, of course, uh, Lent up there, as you make your way to um, Good, uh, Good Friday and to Resurrection Sunday, uh, Lent is all about preparing, preparing ourselves as Christ goes to the cross, as he dies, focusing on the crucifixion. Then, of course, that most glorious time of the year where we celebrate the season of Easter, the resurrection of our Lord. Then... There's the final season there where Jesus ascends. It's, uh, it's on there as Pentecost, where Jesus said, it's much better for you that I go, because when I go, I'm going to send you the helper. I'm going to send you the comforter, the Holy Spirit to live with us. So that the Spirit of God is no longer confined behind a curtain in a temple, but now it's loosed into the whole world to dwell in our hearts and make its home there. And what's neat is that this is only used up so far half of our year. So what's the other half of the year about in the Christian calendar? Well, they honor and they respect the fact that it's not just a story about Jesus. They realize that we have a role to play in this story as well. And so as the next slide shows you, it's actually about the story of the people of God too. And now this is labeled as ordinary time. But it's not... The word ordinary here isn't meant to, to communicate sort of plain or, or boring or just regular. No, ordinary as in ordinances where the days are ordained and they're, they're numbered. And it's this time of year where after having walked with Christ through the life of Christ, celebrating all that he is and all that he's come to do, now it's our turn where we head off into ordinary time, being the blessing that God has called us to be to the world in which we live. And so it follows a whole half a year of a season of celebrating just that. And it ends on Resurrection Sunday, which was last Sunday, where it celebrates the reign of Christ forever, where Christ comes and puts his foot back here on the earth to right all wrongs and rule forever. The story of Jesus is what the Christian calendar is all about. And in truth, the resurrection is the high point of the year. The life of Jesus here in following this calendar becomes the the central defining reality about one's life. And it is the life of Jesus guiding the church through, through every time of year, year after year, after year. And now, I know sometimes, anytime I think of um, anything that's liturgical, there's sort of baggage in my mind with that word, right? Where we think, oh, it's going to be boring, or it's just the same thing all the time, without any freshness or life of the Spirit, right? And liturgy simply means sort of like a form or a structure, a form of worship, a way of doing it, a structure to our worship. And we actually realize that by following a liturgy, say, is the Christian calendar or, or something like that, that actually the intention is that it's new every single year, 
because there's a trust that the, the work of God has been at work in our lives as we've walked. And that each time that you come back to Advent or you come back to Christmas or you celebrate again the crucifixion or, or celebrate again wholeheartedly the resurrection, that something's changed in you. That as you've walked and lived this last year with Christ at the center, you've walked with him and him with you, there's been some changes that have happened. And actually that the goal becomes to live more wholeheartedly into these essential truths of the Christian faith. And that's really what the Christian calendar is all about. The, sen- the life of Jesus becomes the central defining point of, it, of our lives. As we transition now, I want to I talk about um, hope and Advent and kind of, I've sort of thought that I'd, I'd lean hard on the prophet of Isaiah. And Advent, uh, just before I get into it though, I want, it's going to be on hope, obviously is our theme, um, but in a way better, way better than I could articulate. We have friends who, um, well, not personal friends, Christian friends, who do the Bible Project. And I want to show a brief four-minute video that sets us up for understanding hope in a biblical sense. So uh, if you don't mind just rolling that video. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavas for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kava and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sin. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see, in any situation, how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus and he could do so again. 
So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated this similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The Apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the El Peace of glory. In both cases, this El Peace is based on a person, the risen Jesus, who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. have our biblical understanding of what hope is. Um, one of the neat things about uh, Advent is that it means coming or arrival, and really there's sort of three important themes um, with Advent that it looks at, and that is looking at the passage of time, but sort of in something different, sort of the way that we experience time, and we, we all experience as finite beings, uh, as temporary um, we experience time as sort of, it's either past, or it's the present, or it's the future. And that's actually three ways that Advent takes a look um, at time, and it gives us a bit of a picture of that. So I'm going to frame our, um, in the last moments here of our message as time is getting on, uh, these three things, past, present, and future, uh, and a few verses with each. But I don't want to just leave you sort of with a notion of, of Advent. I also want to to ask you um, to consider old ways that might be new to you to enter into this season. Because there's two points on the Christian calendar that we're all about readying ourselves and preparing for something. The first one is Advent, for the birth of Jesus. And the next one is, is Lent, is preparing our hearts for the crucifixion of Jesus and celebrating the resurrection. And I don't want us to miss that, that that actually to celebrate Advent runs somewhat counterculture to what the rest of the world is gearing up for. That while the rest of the world is wanting to maybe escape sort of these realities of God or making it all about gifts or the pursuit of happiness and whatever means possible, that to celebrate Advent actually means to take a little bit of a step back, to give some space to introspection, and to ready ourselves for the coming of our King. But it's not meant to be a, a depressing season. Lent can kind of feel that way. It's about repentance, dealing with stuff, making room in our hearts for the coming of, of, of what Christ did on the cross. But, 
But Advent is different. It's a season of anticipation. So while we fast and while we pray and while we give, it actually has this notion of of wanting to prepare us for what God is about to do. And if you can think of it, Advent is much sort of like looking through a keyhole. Um, In the Christmas films that will be galore this year, there's always sort of that notion where St. Nick comes down the steps and he's, or he's in the house and the kid comes down the step and they, they peek around the corner or they're looking through a keyhole and they're only just getting a glimpse of what's happening beyond there. And it's this glorious scene of, you know, presents coming out of nowhere and filling under the tree and... Well, in some ways, but in a different way, Advent is like that. It's sort of looking through a keyhole at the whole rest of the year and what God is going to do. Our first point here is about the past. And it relates with Advent, um, this season of expectation, that the people of God had been waiting a very long time for God to do something on their behalf. He'd promised to be their God, promised to be their people, and yet over and over again, the people of God continually turned from God and received only his judgment. Or received, um, uh, from the words of the prophets, sort of like, nations are going to overthrow you because you haven't been faithful to God. And yet, as a string, as a red thread through all of those prophecies, there's prophecies of hope about what God is going to do. About what God is going to do, not connected to their obedience, but what God is going to do according to his divine plan. And we see it here in Isaiah, who could very well be uh, the poster prophet for Advent. 700 years before Jesus comes on earth, he speaks these words. He says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. You see, in this first sense, as we look back on the coming of Jesus, we realize that it's a God who fulfills his promises. Hope rests in his character and his faithfulness. We can look back into the past with hope because of what God has done. So how can you enter into Advent? How can you enter into this season and prepare your heart for what God is doing? Well, you can give. Just as God so graciously gave his son for us, we can give. There's an interesting story in the book of Luke. Jesus tells us, he says, uh, As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put two very small copper coins in. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put more than all of the others. All these people gave gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And this is what I think should inspire us during the Advent season to give out of, from the right place in the right heart. Absolutely, if we've been given, we should give and give joyously because God has given us so much. And yet Jesus' caution here is that this widow who didn't, maybe all she had was two coins to rub together, and yet she gave it all, all that she had. Where others give out of their wealth and a sense of security, God actually wants to deal with the matters of our heart, that we give not just trusting in what we have, but we give trusting in his provision. And so I encourage you, this season, this is a season of giving, to return to giving generously 
but even giving in a way that maybe causes you to lean a little harder on who Jesus is and his provision. And don't worry, we've already taken up the offering, so they won't be coming again. And the next one, we move on to the second point here, which is the present. And on the graphic up here, you see part two, present. It's over there beside Pentecost, which is the yearly celebration of the Spirit's coming and dwelling in all of our hearts. That no longer was the, the Spirit of God contained to a, to a single man, the man of Jesus, but now all who call on Christ have him living in them. And here's the verse here uh, in Isaiah 9, 2. He says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And as I read those voice from a prophecy that's th thousands of years old, I couldn't help but feel that that is how Christians are to live in the presence, as those who have the light. One of the most meaningful things um, about the Advent calendar for me is the lighting of these ca candles, and as the light builds from week to week up to the Christ candle, and then on Christmas Eve, there's candles lit from one candle and ends up lighting the candles all over the room. And I can't help but feel that that's sort of a, a vision for how God wants us to spend the Advent season, not living as those who are locked in darkness, but living in a dark world as those who've encountered the light, who, in fact, who carry the very living presence, the very living presence of God with them and are able to extend that in grace. And so I'd ask you, how can you participate uh, in this one? I would say prayer. Allow Advent to be a season where you lean in with prayer. Whether you're running around shopping, whether you're spending a few moments with your kids before they head off to school, or you're waiting on a, in an appointment, use the time to begin to cultivate an expectancy and an excitement about the coming of Christ through prayer. Pray for the issues that are close to your heart. Pray for those who instruct our kids and lead the way. Pray for those who lead in government. Pray for marriages and uh, covenant relationship. Pray for the weak. Pray for the lost. Pray for the lonely. Allow your hearts to be stirred with prayer this season. We can have hope in this present time because we know that Jesus dwells with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Exciting. Exciting. Let's use that. Let's partner with God in prayer during this season. That we would ignite hope in others. And next and finally here, we look at the future. Now, this one I've sort of put back over there because it really gets to do with the reign of Christ Sunday on how Jesus is coming again that the, the third and final arrival after God has come as baby, uh, the baby Jesus, as he comes into our lives through the Spirit, there is one final coming yet to come, and that's what Advent looks at, and that's the coming of Christ. That we live in a world that is still tainted in darkness, just turn on the news. And yet, we look forward to a day when Christ comes again, 
where he deals once and for all with darkness and death and restores all things, making it exactly as he'd intended. There's these verses here in uh, Isaiah, Isaiah, just a little further down. He says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And get this, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice, and righteousness from that time on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Our hope for the future is Jesus' second coming that we wait for and we long for just as God's people waited for the coming of the Messiah. For those centuries and centuries waited for God's promised Messiah. We too now await the same Messiah, but now his coming again to right all things. I couldn't help but think in terms of this, um, how can we participate in this reality during the Advent season? Well, it is a season of fasting. And I know lots of people like to talk about fasting in terms of giving up their phone or their Netflix or things like that, but biblically speaking, fasting has always been about food in the Bible, about giving up a meal for a spiritual reason. And I feel like nothing gets our attention like hunger, right? And in this season, there's tons of feasting. One of the ways we can participate is to also have a fast. I know that doing this with a small family can be actually quite difficult. How do you tell your two-year-old that you're going hungry for this meal, right? So we can pray. Well, a great idea that I came across, actually Father Dean had pointed this out to me, I think he got it uh, from a book, was they, with his family, he would do a rice meal where they would cook a bowl of rice and they would sit down and in many parts of the world, a bowl of rice is all that kids get for that day. And so they would sit down and they would eat just a humble bowl of rice and share together, but have conversation about how the reality is, is that we have so much. And that this can create a longing, that this going without food deepens our sense of longing, our sense of anticipation and expectation for God to come. And so I'm excited this morning as the band's here, and we'll end with a, with a final song, to invite you into this season of hope, that the God who is, is outside of time and holds it all in his hand, past, present, and future, that he's Lord of it all. And that whether we're looking back or encountering difficult circumstances right now or nervous about what the future might hold, there's always a flicker of hope in that God will be true to his character and true to his faithfulness. Advent marks the ways that God has come to us in the past, present, and future. And because of this, we can be filled with hope. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you have come to us and that you're revealing yourself to us even now. I thank you that our hope is not in our circumstances, but it's in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I ask that you would prepare our hearts this year as we give, 
as we pray, as we fast, Lord, that you would turn our attention and our affections on you, that we might be a light and direct others to you who are the light coming into this dark season. In Jesus' name, amen.